Happy Easter, everyone. We, um, we are concluding our Holy Week celebration today, the climax of it, of course, Easter Sunday. We began a little differently than maybe we've done in the past. We've always spent the week building up to this day. And we are focusing indeed on this day because he is risen. And the thing that we did a little bit different is instead of just reporting the events of Palm Sunday last week, we wanted to start out with an understanding, a clear understanding of the gospel and what it means to be saved, what it means to be born again. Hosanna that they cried out was a call, Lord save us. So we talked about what it means to be saved last week. We said there were four non-negotiable points of the gospel. There is no gospel message apart from those four points. And I won't start reciting that today or I'll end up preaching last week's message. But you can go online and look up Palm Sunday and watch that. But we began with the good news that we can be born again. We ask you to keep in mind the events of Holy Week all week long. Monday and Tuesday were days uh, that um, Jesus did some things that seemed strange for Jesus. He turned over the tables and drove out the money changers. He cleansed the temple area. Now he had done that twice but uh, the events of Monday of that Holy Week were an indication that judgment was coming and that sin must be uh, answered for and atoned for. And it would be, but sin was a very serious business. On Tuesday of that week, Jesus' authority was questioned by the chief priests and by the scribes. And Jesus told some of the most frightening parables and stories and pronounced some incredible judgments on a religious system that had rejected him. Now, this is just kind of a thumbnail sketch. So Monday and Tuesday were days of great, great controversy and symbolic judgment uh, at the hands of Jesus. Wednesday is a silent day so far as we can tell from Scripture. We don't know what happened on Wednesday. Some have said that uh, Jesus set that day aside to stay in the presence of the Father and prepare for the events of the crucifixion and, of course, ultimately leading up to resurrection. But on Thursday, Jesus had Passover with the disciples, gave us uh, a special meaning to that Passover meal that we observe as the Lord's Supper or Communion. And Jesus gave those last instructions, showing, as the scripture says, his love to the uttermost, the utmost of his love and concern for them. And um, then, of course, there was the illegal trial and condemnation of Jesus uh, following the Last Supper. And Friday, Good Friday, Jesus carried his cross to the place of the skull, was crucified, was died, uh, was, uh, died, he died and was placed in the tomb uh, on Friday before Passover 
began Saturday had to have been one of the longest, most question-marked days that believers in God have ever known because sometimes it seems like we lose before we realize that we've won. And Saturday was one of those days. But praise God, Sunday came, the first day of the week, Resurrection Day, and that's what's brought us here today. Now, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer as we usually do in just a moment. And while we get ready to do that, I want to say thank you to Justin and all the rest of the staff for making uh, Holy Thursday such a special time. Uh, I wasn't here, wasn't feeling well, but Justin did a great job with that Thursday. Uh, and so did everybody that helped him with the program. And then Friday, we had a celebration uh, over on the new property. I don't know if I've ever seen as many eggs in one place. Uh, beautiful congregation of children and parents and grandparents. I think we ran out of parking space and ran out of food. And uh, I mean, it's, or, or almost ran out of food. I'm not sure if we actually did, but it was a great celebration. And if you missed it, I hope you can make the next event that we'll be having over there as we move forward. But as we celebrate the birthmarks of the believer, Let's look to the screen and let's pray as Christians all over the world are doing today. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Birthmarks of the believer. What we want to do today is not based on works. When I say we want to examine ourselves and be sure that we're in the faith, that's not a works-based salvation or a works-based exercise. It is the understanding and the idea that Paul was sharing in 2 Corinthians 13.5 when he was talking about the majesty of the gospel and living it out. Paul made a statement and it's, it's indicated several other places in Scripture. But Paul tells the Corinthians that they should examine themselves to see if they are in the faith. I think NASB puts it this way, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. And the emphasis of that command was not, well, maybe you didn't get the real thing. The emphasis was not, well, sometimes you might've got a little bit, but you didn't get enough. No, Paul was talking about the majesty of the gospel and he had been making the case that the gospel works so he said, when trouble and trial comes to your life, examine yourself and be sure that you're living out that wonderful thing that God gave you. The problem is not that Paul was afraid we had made a false confession. The, the situation was that we don't always walk in the glorious truth of the gospel the way we ought to. Now, I want to give you a couple of disclaimers when I say examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Number one, this is, this is not about perfection. 
It's not about perfection. Because when I give you these checkpoints, these birthmarks, and there are five of them, none of us probably are batting a thousand on any of them. Uh, it's not about perfection, but what we're looking for is the presence of these things, not necessarily the perfection of these things. You may look at one of them and say, hey, I get an A on that. I, do, I, I'm, I got that one under my belt. Uh, don't get arrogant, but celebrate. Uh, you might have another one where you say, well, I'm doing pretty good. I can do better. I'll give myself a B minus. Or there may be one where you say, well, I'm just average. I'll give myself a C. Back when I was in school, I don't know if they still have it anymore. They had D minus. I got D minus on one course that I'd rather not say what it was in, <laughs> except to say um, algebra does not make any sense <laughs> to a normal, rational mind. And um, <clears throat> it was called social promotion. And you say, what, what was the value of social promotion? When you got a D minus, it said, you failed, but I like you. <laughs> and, and you've got a good heart. Or I don't want you in my class again <laughs> next year. It was the only D minus I ever got, but I got a D minus and it was called social promotion. It says, we're going to give you credit but uh, don't, don't get haughty, you know, don't get, and, and our suggestion is not to go to algebra two or geometry, just go, go to general math or business math. And um, you, you might say, well, I'm, I, maybe I'm just kind of getting a social promotion. Well, that's okay. That just means we need to work on it. This is not about you being a hypocrite it's not about you not being saved because your works aren't enough or your grades aren't high enough. Because remember, it's by grace through faith that we are saved. But we, we still do works not to be saved, but to show that we are saved. We are created for good works, but none of us have works good enough that can get us to heaven. That's the, that's the beautiful message of Easter. It's all him. It's all him. And uh, it's our privilege to just em embrace it. So it's not about perfection. It is about process. Now, what I mean by that is you remember that uh, when we give our hearts to the Lord, we are instantly justified. We are instantly sanctified. We are instantly pronounced born again. And we pass from death into life instantly. Uh, that's, there's no question about that. You'll never be more ready for heaven than the moment you give your life to Jesus Christ. But I guarantee you there will be days in your life that you're a better Christian than you are now. Uh, or, or I think all of us live with the hope that we'll be a better Christian next Easter than we are this Easter. And hopefully we're a better Christian this Easter than we were last Easter. That's the process of sanctification. And you say, Pastor, you said we were already sanctified. Sanctification is both an experience, a crisis, an event, and it's also a process. We are immediately set apart. We are immediately declared holy, but we grow in grace. We grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is about process and whatever grade you give yourself on these five points, um, there's, there's most certainly room for improvement for all of us. The third thing that I want to say is 
um, even though we're not perfect and even though we still are in process, we recognize the fact that we are new creatures. We haven't just turned over a new leaf. This is a new life. We've been born again. And the, the last thing I want to say is believing these things is not just a case of intellectual orthodoxy. Yes, I believe this. The scripture, when it says if we believe, it never has to do with intellect alone. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is not a mental affirmation. It certainly involves that. But it reflects the idea of, of a spiritual rebirth. We are walking in the light as he is in the light. So if you're a Christian, these five things will be true of your life to varying degrees, but we should be growing in them. And that's the sign of a good, healthy person. Now, I want to um, talk to you about the birthmarks of the believer. And you'll notice that we use something like nine, ten scriptures today. And every one of them are either from John's gospel or from his epistle. And let me explain to you what I'm trying to do today. Um, if you go to Bible college or maybe seminary, <clears throat> there are several ways you study the Bible. Um, number one, you study it generally. Like you might have Old Testament survey. Then you might have New Testament survey. But then they'll break it down. And you might have Old Testament historical books or the Pentateuch or the major prophets or minor prophets. Or in the New Testament, you might have the Gospels or the, the historical books, the book of Acts. You might have Revelation, the epistles, pastoral epistles and so forth. So you break them down into sections. But as you go a little deeper, you, are, you, you will find yourself probably studying what's called, um, oh, for instance, Pauline theology. And you will study what the Bible says from the writings of Paul. Or Petrine, the writings of Peter, or Johannine uh, uh, doctrine or theology, the writings of John. You say, well, why would you study Peter without Paul, and why would you study Paul without John? Well, there's there's a, an idea, and I and I think it's true. Um, all of the Scripture is true from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. We know that all of the Scripture is true. It's inspired. In, in, the, in the original form. We don't have any question about that. But sometimes if I study something using Paul's words or Paul's perspective only, it gives me a little clearer thought or clearer understanding, I should say, of exactly what Paul was saying. The same thing with the writings of Peter or the same things with the writings of John. Every man, everything they write is true. They were all carried along by the Holy Spirit and preserved from error. We believe that emphatically. But when we look at what one writer said about a topic, we can begin to see what part of that doctrine was most important to him. You understand what I'm saying? That doesn't negate what any other part of the Bible. It doesn't negate what any other person wrote. But it says this is what was important about salvation to John. Or this is the way Paul understood salvation um, as opposed to the other writers. And, it, and the material never conflicts. It complements. It always complements. But 
I wanted to focus on the writings of John because John had a unique position. John would say things like this, we lived with him. Our hands held him, touched him. Our eyes beheld him. Our ears heard what he said. John had a relationship with Jesus that John said, it referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I think two things are going on there. John's not saying, you know, hey, Jesus loved me. I can't say if he really loved Peter, but I know he loved me. No, it, it wasn't that at all. I think it was a testimony to, God, to the incredible love of Jesus for John. But I also think it was a humble way of saying, I want you to listen to what I'm saying because Jesus and I had a special relationship. And I think that, I think the scripture bears that out. John, along with, um, uh, with, with James and Peter, seemed to be in, with Jesus in special places where nobody else was allowed to go. Um, I, 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 I used to think that was because they had a special relationship. Then the more I read the Gospels, I said, no, they were just in trouble all the time. Jesus kept them close to keep them out of trouble. But I've, I've reverted back to the old view. I think Peter and James and John had, even though they all had problems, they all had problems, um, they, they seemed to be the ones always leaning into Jesus, always leaning into more, always leaning into uh, the deeper things of God. Not that the others didn't, but there was just a, a perspective that they had and a tendency that they had. And you can tell um, from the place that John occupied, like at the table and from other incidents, that it was very clear that I think you can make the case. Uh, it's beyond what we're going to talk about today. But I think you can make the case that if Jesus had a best, closest friend, it was John. Um, it's interesting that when Jesus was on the cross um, and was about to yield up his spirit to God and die, he looked at his mother and said, woman, behold your son. And, and he looked at John and said, son, behold your, your mother. And that was, you know, when Jesus said, woman, behold your son, he wasn't saying, mama, look at, look at me, look what they've done. Can you believe they've done this to me? No, the conversation, when you read from all of the Gospels, the conversation was about her and John. And, she, and Jesus was saying to Mary, Mother, John is your son now. And John, this is your mother now. Jesus had at least four other uh, brothers, uh, uh, you know, stepbrothers or half-brothers, whatever you want to call them. Um, you would think that he would have, as the oldest son, she was his responsibility because Joseph had died. You would have assumed that Jesus would have committed the care of his mother to, if not all of his brothers, at least the older brothers, but he does that to John. And he says, woman, this is your, and, and woman didn't mean woman. It, it, was a, it, was a, it was a term of affection. It was, in our culture, it would be like, sweetheart, here is your son. He's going to be the son to you because I'm not going to be here anymore. And he says to John, behold your mother, you take her. And the Bible says that from that day forward, Mary was taken into the house of John and John cared for her for the rest of her life. 
So John had a very special perspective. And these five scriptures that I want to share with you briefly today, I think this is John's perspective on, let me put it this way. I believe John was saying every place I've ever been. Now, now when John, John writes about this in his gospels, then he writes about it in his epistles. John writes a lot about true and false apostles. He writes a lot about the spirit of Antichrist, false teachers of Antichrist. In the gospel, he recognized in the words of Jesus that the day will come where there will be a person, the Antichrist himself. Loved Antichrist is more than a spirit. He's more than false teaching. He's more than a system. Antichrist is all of those things, but there is coming a day when there will be one known as the Antichrist. And John recognized this. So John was all about, when you read especially 1 John, um, John was all about, listen, we need to know who are really disciples of the Lord and who are not. You need to know who to welcome into your home and who not to welcome into your home. He was about truth. John fought Gnosticism, which was a serious threat to early Christianity. And it was uh, from the earliest days, there has been an attack on the divinity of Jesus, on the purpose of Jesus, on the nature of Jesus, on the, on the work of Jesus. It's been that way from the earliest days and it still rages today. So John says, this is how we know light from darkness. This is how we know truth from error. This is how we know the genuine from the false. So John in his writings was really after them understanding this is how we know that someone has been born again. I want to talk to you about those five things. I want you to grade yourself and I want you to bring it to the Lord. I don't want you to share your report card with your spouse or with your parents or with your children. This is between you and the Lord. I don't even need you to share it with me. But we began with talking about what it means to be saved last week. The, the core four, as I said, non-negotiable foundational truths that have to do with salvation. And I said last week that any gospel that doesn't contain those four undeniable, unalterable truths is not the gospel at all. Paul was very adamant about that. He said to the Galatians who were struggling with the role of the scripture and the role of justification and the role of works. He said, if anybody presents to you a gospel that does not contain these core values, he said, even if he's an angel from heaven wearing a name tag that says angel first class, he said, whoever does it, even if they're an angel from heaven, let them be accursed. Uh, in our language, let them go to hell. Let them be condemned because there is only one gospel. But he says, this is how we know. This is how we look. And he would have joined Paul in saying, examine yourselves to be sure that your faith is genuine. Now, these are not the only five birthmarks of a believer. John himself could have mentioned, I mean, we could have drawn out a couple more. Um, Paul might add four or five, six to the list, maybe five. Um, Peter would have listed several more. Um, so there are a lot of ways that we can know that we are believers. But we're not going to try to cover everything the Bible says about 
the, the birthmarks or the good works or the characteristics of every child of God. But I want to narrow our focus to what John said, knowing that John was in a struggle much like we are today, where we are in the middle of a culture that has, has usually been friendly to the scripture. America in its history has, with all of our other problems has been friendly to the scripture, but we are in post-Christian America now. And we are having to fight battles that now, now the younger you are, that's probably the only thing you've ever known. But the older you are, you would have, you would agree. There's, it hasn't always been like this. There hasn't always been this denial of the faith. It was from outliers. It was on the fringe, but now it has moved to mainstream America. And even many who identify as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, denominationally, church-wise, a lot of pastors are denying the core values of the gospel. I believe it's the great falling away that Paul predicted in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The, Paul said, Antichrist will not be revealed. The man of sin will not be revealed until there comes that great falling away. Or, and it will, in the bigger context is he said, the Lord will not return until the man of sin is revealed and the man of sin will not be revealed until there's a great falling away. And there have always been fallings away. There have always been, there have always been errors. There have always been deceivers. Uh, it's, it's not that they've never been. Paul put it this way. It shall come to pass in the last days that evil men and seducers will grow worse and worse. You know, I, some people say, oh, it's always been like this. Yeah, it's always been like this. But before it was more or less the fringe, now we're seeing it like a shadow lengthening and invading our very culture and our very churches. And we need to be aware of these things. John lived in a time like ours where it seemed the darkening, the darkening shadows were lengthening. John had no way of knowing that the church would go through a period of extreme persecution. I say he had no way of knowing. By the Spirit of the Lord, he had a way of knowing. The church would go through extreme persecution. But then by the, the 300s, the mid-300s, Christianity would no longer be... Um, <clears throat> Uh, the, the enemy of the state, it would become welcome in the state. And then Christianity would eventually become required in the state. And that was one of the darkest days in church history is when uh, Christianity became the state religion. It was wonderful when Christianity was allowed to exist. But be careful whenever a worldly system tries to endorse the godly system it's trying to, it's like trying to mix oil and water. It does not work well. But the Bible does say that as we move toward the end days, there's going to be this darkness that spreads. There's going to be, when we talk more about fullness, we're going to talk about dangers of the last days. And I'm, I'm not a doom and gloom that everything's horrific and everything's bad because I believe we're on the brink of the greatest revival the church has ever seen but it will occur at the time of the greatest apostasy the church has ever seen. 
And what we have got to be aware of is that there is a false that will present itself as strongly as the true. It's called the wheat and the tares. And the Bible said that wheat and tares look so much alike. Are you guys with me out there? Okay, we're, gonna, we're still going to have Easter dinner. Don't worry. But the wheat and the tares look so much alike that sometimes we just have to let things run their course with watchful eye, knowing that until those things mature, it's difficult to tell what's right and what's wrong. But we are to still watch. We are to still be diligent. We are still to prove that which is true. We are never given the command to sit back and just let things happen. We are to be diligent defenders and watchers for truth. Here are the things that John said. Now, I'm going to just refer to some of the scriptures today. First John, or excuse me, John the Gospel, first chapter, verses 1 through 5 John goes back to the beginning. None of the other gospels start like this. Theologians have said that Matthew was the gospel for the Jews. They have said that Mark was the gospel for the Romans, that Luke was the gospel for the Greeks. But they have also said that John was the gospel of belief. It was the gospel for the church. It was the gospel, if you please, for the lost. Because John said these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that in believing you might have life through His name. He said this, In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life and that life was the light of men. And He presents something that we must not forget, loved ones. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The darkness has not comprehended it, some versions say. The darkness has not overcome it. John said, we go back to the beginning, and Jesus was divine. Jesus was God, is God, is divine. He has always existed. But understand this, he says, there is a conflict between dark and light. And the darkness will never understand the light. The darkness will never agree with the light. The darkness will never have common ground with the light. And he would say later that the, it, there are times it seems that the darkness is overcoming. But he starts his gospel this way. Understand, the light wins. The light cannot be conquered by darkness. A few verses later, speaking of Jesus, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And praise God, the narrative didn't stop there. We have verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And he says, listen, there is the truth that you and I live in a world that is diametrically opposed, these two views of light and darkness. He says, don't make the mistake of thinking that because Jesus has come, that all opposition is vanquished. That's going to happen. But that's not where we are now. You are in darkness. You live in a world of darkness. But understand this, if you embrace Jesus, he has given you something supernatural. It's more than your intellect. 
It's more than your opinion. It's more than your vote. He says he has given you the power to become the children of God. And John would go on to say in a time when society was becoming more and more secular, when faith was being more and more questioned, he said, you want to know who's got real faith? He said, let me give you five questions to ask. Here's number one. Do you fully embrace Jesus as Lord? Do you fully embrace Jesus as Lord? Now you say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, we've got to understand that the concept of belief in the Bible was never just intellectual. I mean, you have to believe intellectually, but faith, faith isn't the opposite of logic. You know, we, we've got this imagined war between faith and science. They're not even on the same level. Science changes every time somebody fires up a Bunsen burner. <laughs> science is in a place of constant discovery. Now, I'm not opposed to science. I thank God for science. I thank God for medicine. I thank God for, for doctors and nurses. Man, I tell you what, I think I am alive today because of the care of doctors and nurses. I, I, have, no, I have no bones to pick with science. But I understand this, science is here and my faith is not the opposite. Faith transcends science. Faith transcends logic. Faith transcends what the natural mind, the, the opposite of faith is unbelief, not science, not logic. It's unbelief. But John, Jesus was talking to John, or excuse me, um, to Nicodemus and Nicodemus says, tell me, what, what is this light that you're talking about? What is this thing? Jesus said, it's like being born again. And Nicodemus said, I don't understand. Jesus said, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand. And that was a play on words because making a, being a teacher of Israel did not make him understand. We can't understand it with our natural mind. But Jesus said, Nicodemus, this is like being born again. To understand the light over the darkness, you have to realize that something supernatural. He said, can I enter my mother's body and be born again? And Jesus probably chuckled and said, no, you know that's impossible. But what happens to you when you move from darkness to light is the same as being born again. The impossible has to happen. Something otherworldly has to happen. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, what he was saying to Nicodemus, when all was said and done, he said, you have to embrace me on my terms. And you don't have the option of going to a cafeteria where you say, I'll take some of this, but none of that. Ooh, I'll take two of those. No, 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 no. And, and I know I've said this before, but Romans 1 tells us that the sin that damns mankind the defining sin of damnation is not accepting God for who he is, but recreating him in our own image. We even as Christians try to make a difference between God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. Somehow thinking that God needed to go to anger management classes between Malachi and Matthew. But the same Jesus of the New Testament was the same God of the Old Testament. 
And the great sin of mankind, the great sin of apostasy, the great sin of deconstruction is that we, if we believe there's a God at all, we will only accept a God that is refashioned, redesigned on our terms and that we are comfortable with in our minds. He said, do you fully embrace Jesus as Lord? Listen to what John said in in chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There were no other options. 1 John 4, we know that we live in him and he is in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. That is the, one of the most loaded statements in the entire New Testament. If you believe the claims of Jesus, if you believe that Jesus is indeed the son of God, if you believe in the mission of Jesus and the stated purpose of Jesus. If you believe that, then God lives in you and you live in God. Now here's the action point. And and the clear implication is that something supernatural has to happen. A gospel with no supernatural element is not the gospel at all. I, I, you know, if a theologian or a pastor tries to explain away the miraculous dynamic of the gospel, I can almost guarantee you he is presenting a gospel that is no gospel at all. True believers embrace more than an intellectual assent of Jesus. They love him, trust him, and submit to him. I was talking to somebody the other day in a restaurant and conversation led to baseball and and I, I said, yeah, he asked me and I said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a lifetime Yankees fan. I said, I've always been a Yankees fan. He said, oh, you must have been raised in New York. And I said, no, I wasn't raised in New York. I was raised in West Florida. And he said, then how'd you become a Yankees fan? I said, because when I became old enough to start watching baseball, we had the Yankee game of the week and the Yankees were world champions and there was nobody like Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris, and Moose Scourin, and Yogi Berra. I said, it, they, they were just the greatest. And I said, I've, I've, I've tried to take my kids to Yankee Stadium. I've gone to Yankee Stadium. I said, whenever the Yankees played the Braves in the World Series back in the 90s, I've always been a Braves fan. First game I ever went to was a Braves game uh, against Houston. Now, they weren't the Astros back then. They were the Houston Colt 45s. That tells you how long ago it was. And I said, I've never pulled, to Ramona, I said, I've never pulled against the Braves. I don't know if I can pull against the Braves. And then when they, they played the game, the first game of the World Series from Yankee Stadium, and I saw the Braves, I said, I don't think I can pull against the Braves. And then the Yankees came out in their old pinstripes. I said, Go Yankees! And the guy said, well, I'm a, he said, I'm from New England. He said, I'm a Red Sox fan. And I, I kind of laughed because Yankees, Red Sox, that's a big, you know, rivalry. And I said, so, I said, I guess you don't like hearing that I'm a, a Yankees fan. He said, oh, it doesn't matter. He said, I've never been to a game. Uh, he said, I don't even know if I've ever watched a game. I'm just a Red Sox fan because I'm from the Boston area. And I thought, you're not a fan. <laughs> I said, fan is short for fanatic. 
I said, you are, a, I mean, to myself, I didn't say it to him. I said, I said, you are acquainted with the Red Sox. You may have driven past Fenway Park, but you are not a fan. And I kind of laughed about that. And you know, that's the way a lot of people are. They may say, well, I'm a Christian, but all that means is that, well, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not Jewish, I'm not Hindu, uh, you know, so I'm not an atheist, so I guess I must be a Christian. Uh, you, you are not a Christian. You are giving a tip of the hat to Jesus. And when believers embrace Jesus, it's more than an intellectual assent. They love him, trust him, submit to him. So that's question number one. Have you fully embraced Jesus as Lord? Not have you intellectually agreed that he existed? Here's the second question that he asked. Do you seek to faithfully obey the commands of Jesus? Is, is that your goal, to faithfully obey the commands of Jesus? Now you say, well, if it's by grace, it's not about my obedience. You know, obedience is a sign that grace is at work in your life. This is love for God, John said, to obey his commands. Oh, now I tell you, I was listening to joy on screen. There are a lot of ways you can tell that you love the Lord. One, as she pointed out, is to care for the orphans and widows and those in tough places. Absolutely. That is old and New Testament clear concept. And there are, there are a dozen ways to show your love for God. But John says, I know this, if a man really loves God, it boils down to this, you obey his commands. And he took it a step further. He said, his commands are not burdensome. You see, that's what's behind the whole God 2.0 movement. We don't want to be held liable for any commands that are difficult or burdensome. See, Ramon and I are coming up on 43 years of marriage, but I want to tell you something. When, when the pastor, when my pastor said, I want you to make a promise. And he, he, you know, he really meant a promise. I mean, anytime you have to swear before God and witnesses to do something, that's pretty much a promise. He said, I want you to swear that you will stay away from all other women in, in this kind of relationship and be faithful only to her. And I joked in the first service, but they were so shocked. I won't try joking with it now. They, they, th they thought I meant it. Um, I told them in first service that I said, well, that's not fair. I mean, four billion women in the world and I, ha I, can, only, I can only kiss one, you know? And um, I said, oh, that's not fair. That's burdensome. Well, no, I didn't say that. That was a joke, okay? I didn't say that. I didn't miss a beat. I said, I do. I do. Um, or yes, ma'am, or something. I forgot what I said. But I, I gladly said, this is not burdensome. Why? It was because the commandment was saying, you've got to be loving like this to the one that you love. See, I was like Jacob whenever he was told he had to work seven years for the love of his life. The Bible says that it was only like a few days to him. Why? 
because of the love that he had for her. The degree to which you and I have love for Jesus, the burdensome nature of obedience is taken out of the equation. Paul would take it a step further. He was talking about meat offered to idols. He said, I know that there is no reason that we can't eat meat offered to idols. He said, it's true that there are demons behind the idols, but if you understand that the food is sanctified by the word of God in prayer, you can eat the meat. But you know what he said? He said, but if I am causing a weaker brother to stumble, he said, I'll eat butter beans. He said, I don't have to, just because you have a right to do something doesn't mean that that's the wise thing to do. Uh, and, and the only way a Christian can say, I won't do this, or I won't go there, or I won't do that, it, you know, it's not because they have such outstanding moral discipline. Maybe they do, but sometimes just because they love, just because they love. And so I, this is love for God to obey his commandments. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him. Are you ready? We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. John says, here's the first way you know someone's really saved. Do you fully embrace Jesus as Lord? Now remember, it doesn't mean that you don't have issues or you don't have struggles or you don't fail. But is he my Lord? Is he the rule and the leader of my life? Do I seek to faithfully obey the commands of Jesus? I know that there are times that I fail. John would also say if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But is it what I'm trying to do? Am I trying to faithfully obey the commands of Jesus? How many of you here know who Walter Cronkite was? Okay, fair, fair number. I'd say about 40% of you know who Uncle Walter was. When I grew up, he was the anchor for CBS News. And he was, he was always within the top three or four of the most respected men in America. Number one was whoever the president was. Number two was Billy Graham. Number three, um, oh, I forget who number three was. Um, might have been the Pope, I can't remember. Uh, but number four, three or four, was almost always Walter Cronkite. He was the anchor and he ended every broadcast this way. That's the way it is. February 17th, 1967. For those of us at CBS Evening News, good evening. You know, that, and you trusted, you trusted Uncle Walter. Whenever we'd get close to finishing supper, my daddy would say, let's go see what Uncle Walter has to say. He was, he was a great newscaster. Now, uh, and that was in the day before uh, news anchors gave their political opinions out. I mean, it was, you, you reported the news and that was all they did. And, um, uh, when I read his biography 
And he began with CBS radio before, before the days of television. And uh, he was a journalist on the battlefields of World War II. Now in those days, in those days, the journalists and chaplains, both non-combatants, wore the same uniform. And it was only one pin or piece of insignia that told you if this was a clergyman or if this was a journalist. And so one night after a particularly tough battle, they were sitting in a subdued lighting and he was sitting with men. He thought he went over to a group of journalists, but it was a group of chaplains. The chaplains saw him coming, thought he was another chaplain, didn't know he was a journalist. And they struck up a conversation and one of the chaplains said, what denomination are you? And forgive the language, it, it wasn't meant as profanity, it was meant to reveal a stubbornness. He said, Cronkite said, well, I guess you'd call me a jackass Presbyterian. He said, I believe, but belief is hard. And I argue with everything. I don't like being told what to do. And I believe in Jesus, but I'm just like a jackass. I just seem to fight everything. The chaplains dropped their mouths because how did this guy make it in to the chaplaincy with that kind of an attitude? And now I, I do believe, I, I mean, I, I don't know this, but I find no reason to not believe that Walter Cronkite was a Christian, even though he might not qualify for membership in some of our churches, you know. He, he was a believer uh, on, on whatever level. But a lot of people are like that in their belief of Jesus. They're a jackass Presbyterian or Baptist or Assembly of God or whatever. And what... I'm trying to say is that it's one thing to have a mental assent, but we never fully surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. I'm not saying that was the case with Cronkite, but the terminology he used fits. Okay. So true believers embrace a life that actively obey the words of Jesus. John would say, do you fully embrace Jesus as Lord? Number one. Number two, do you seek to faithfully obey the commands of Jesus? And here's number three. Are you grieved when you sin? The question would be, how do you feel when you break the law of God? King James uses a word that's a very good word, very accurate word. It's grieved. He says, be sure that you don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and grieved is used very, very well in the King James Version. Uh, but we can use the word unhappy. The bottom line is when you do wrong, how does that make you feel? Do you rejoice that you got away with it? Are you glad that, well, I'm glad I'm secure because I don't have any intention of giving this up? Or are you truly grieved? Adrian Rogers, that great Baptist pastor, used to put it this way. He said, a sinner leaps into sin and loves it. But a Christian lapses into sin and loathes it. It's a very real question. How do you feel when you know you have failed the Lord? Now I've got to say something here. The enemy loves to shame us in our failure. He wants us to believe that we're not saved, that we're not any good, that we're not worthy. And you know, you can settle that argument early by admitting you're not worthy. None of us are worthy. 
but he wants you to have the unworthiness of hopelessness. When God wants us to have the unworthiness of leaning on him. See, now I, I, I realize that it's one thing to feel bad about doing something wrong and let the devil suck the hope out of you. But it's another thing when you've done wrong to feel bad about it and know that Jesus forgives and he will help you. But we need to have a sense of sorrow for our sin. 1 John 3 says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Now, loved ones, I've got to say this. 1 John is one of the most perplexing books because on one hand, he says, if any of us say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But then he said, nobody that's born of God can continue to sin. Nobody that's born of God will sin. And I will say this, in the Greek text, it's a matter of verbs and tenses. And what John was saying, and it didn't translate well into English, it should have, but the, not every translation translates it well. What it should have said is nobody who belongs to Jesus continues to sin in the manner they did before coming to Jesus. Nobody who is in Jesus can continue to live the same life that they lived before coming to Jesus. John by no means is saying that a Christian can't sin. He, he, that would be a foolish thing to say. You say, well, prove it to me. Just, just go over the last 24 hours. We've all done something. We've all thought something. We've all wished something. We've all murmured or complained about something. I don't know of any of us that when you go past more than seven seconds says, oh, I haven't sinned. I haven't done anything wrong. And if you say that, you're guilty of pride. <laughs> no, John wasn't saying if you're born again, you cannot sin or you will not. He didn't even say you will not sin. He says, you don't live the way you used to live. And when you do wrong, when you do have those moments of lapsing, you are broken over it. And you realize that you have failed. I have told the Lord, I've tried to help him. I try to help him with several things. I think I've had some good ideas. So far, he's not invested in any of them. But... I thought in my moments of desperation, when I blew it, I said, Lord, what you should have done when we gave our hearts to you, you should fix us so that we cannot sin anymore. And he's never bought into that because he did something far better. When I got saved, he didn't fix me so that I cannot sin anymore. He did put something in me so that I cannot sin and enjoy it anymore. Oh, I can still sin, but I'm miserable about it. I'm, 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 I obsess over it. Sometimes it's hard for me to forgive myself. Sometimes it's hard for me to let it go. I have to learn to lean into his grace at the same time realizing the severity of my sin and failure. But the bottom line is even though I know he forgives me, even though I know that he uh, lays my sins under the blood, I still am broken over my sin. And that's a good healthy sign. So question number three is, are you grieved 
when you sin. Here's number four. Are you overcoming the devil? Are you learning to resist him so that he flees from you? You say, well, that's for the spiritually elite. No, it's, it, it's something we need to learn. 1 John 5, 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. See, not only does he say you can't live the way you used to live, but you need to understand that you can be victorious. It's not just that you're going to do it, but you don't have to. You can be victorious. Um, you say, Pastor, do you believe in sinless perfection? I absolutely do. It's our goal. I've never met anyone that attained it except Jesus, but it is our goal. That's why Jesus told us to be perfect as our father in heaven is perfect. What's he going to say? Be 80% perfect, you know, be, be, be 90% good, be faithful to your wife 99% of the time. No, that 1% can be a booger. No, our goal is sinless perfection. But even though we have not attained that, we should be learning how to overcome the devil. We shouldn't be blown away or blown around by every wind of doctrine, Paul says. And we need to learn to stop believing every lie. Uh, Jude said that we need to embrace the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And the emphasis of that phrase is that it was delivered once and for all. And you ought to be strong to stand in it. It's not something that's up and down and back and forth. The Bible says that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And that Greek word literally is translated two-souled. Two-souled. Two sets of emotions ruling the day. He says you will be unstable in everything until you settle the issue. And this is what he said. The evil one cannot harm him. True believers don't live in slavery to sin anymore. They may struggle. We all struggle. But we are learning to receive victory through Christ's provision. You remember when we started studying the words and we talked about salvation, past, present, and future. And we said just as a reminder that we were saved in the past from the penalty of sin. The issue of hell was settled for you the moment you came to Jesus. The, the fear of hell was done away with. The penalty was paid by us accepting Jesus' penalty or payment rather on the cross. Salvation is in the future. The day is coming when not only will we be delivered from the penalty of sin, but we'll be delivered from the very presence of sin or even the possibility of sin. We're going to be like him, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. This mess won't start up again. But in the present, we are in the process of learning deliverance and victory over the power of sin. The penalty is taken care of. The promise is, is guaranteed. But right now, we are being delivered from the power of sin. And Paul made a statement, a bold statement of affirmation. Sin shall not have dominion over you. And loved ones, I want to tell you, we don't come to just celebrate that we're not going to hell. We don't come, I mean, that's, if that was it, that's enough. And we don't come just to celebrate heaven. And I think the older I get, the more heaven is precious to me. But we come together to celebrate, to worship, 
to receive the word, to pray for each other, to be encouraged, because every one of us is learning to walk in power over sin. The enemy will flee from us. Too many of us are like a cartoon I saw one time. It was an, an elderly man on death's bed, and the preacher had come to visit him. You could tell the guy was just about to cross over to the other life. He wanted to live, but he didn't have much going for him. And in the cartoon, the preacher says, renounce the devil. <coughs> and the old man looks at him and says, I ain't in no condition to antagonize anybody. We think that we don't want to make the devil mad. We think that we need to appease him. We think that we cannot fight him because if we fight him, we'll make him really mad. But our promise, it's not just a command, it is a promise. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why? Because God said, if you'll draw near to me, I'll draw close to you. Okay. John would say, have you fully embraced Jesus as Lord? Do you live under his lordship? Do you seek to faithfully obey the commands of Jesus? How do you respond when you fail the Lord? Are you, are you grieved that you failed? And are you, are you learning, even if it's a little bit at a time, are you learning to overcome the devil? And here's the last question he would ask. And I want to tell you, this sounds like we got one, two, three, and four over here. And this number five is like, where'd this come from? It's way over here in another area. It's like there's another dynamic. This is the strangest birthmark of the believer. It's the least obvious. It's the one that we see least need for. But here's the question. Do you love other Christians? Too often, our answer is, well, I love them that deserve it. But there's something that is so supernatural. It can only happen when God works in your heart. And that's why you can have in church somebody that's a tither, that's a teacher, that learns evangelism explosion. Somebody does all of these things, but if they can't get along with brothers and sisters, you'll see them spend the rest of their lives hopping from church to church, hopping from cause to cause, and they think the church is a failure. They think their denomination is a failure. They think society's a failure, and they don't understand that the most natural part, one of the most uh, supernatural parts of their Christian life is they should walk in a supernatural love for the brothers. And we have, we have taught ourselves to embrace our offenses. We've taught ourselves to embrace our rights. We've taught ourselves to learn a, a mantra or a position or a mindset that alienates us from anybody that's different from us. And we become convinced that we alone have the words of eternal life. And we don't understand that we don't love the brothers. 
Well, pastor, I do. There's, there's those I love. I mean, but, but they all have proven that they're worthy of my love. Wow. Jesus said this. He says, what reward do you have if you love those that love you? He said, the tax collectors and Pharisees do that. Uh, I want to tell you, it's hard, but I want to love the unlovable because I found out I'm sometimes unlovable. I know it's hard for you to believe, but I'm sometimes unlovable. See, one poet put it this way. To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints I know, now that's a different story. <laughs> I think it was Chuck Swindoll that put it this way. He said, we're like, he said, we, I, he said our love is like porcupines. He said, we're like porcupines on a cold night. He said, we huddle together because it's cold and we want to get warm. But then before long, the warmth turns to heat and the needles come out and drive the porcupines away. He said, what I'm trying to say is that we both need each other and needle each other. It's probably true. But loved ones, we don't teach this much. We teach family relations and we teach loving one another as a necessary step to have peace. And, and, and I'm afraid that we only see loving each other as you got to love to get along. But do you understand that out of 614 commandments, Jesus says the two greatest ones are to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then number two is to love your neighbor as yourself. It, it, it blows my mind. Number one's a no-brainer. But number two, ah, maybe number 37. No, number two. Because the Lord knows that the whole kingdom of God hinges upon the idea of family. Oh, I know that we're called an army. We're called a build, building. We're called a field. We're called a temple. We have all sorts of descriptive phrases and all of them are legitimate. But the one that God uses to describe us most is family. In fact, do you know that um, when Paul was talking about husband and wife, he said, I know this is a mystery, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. I don't know if we understand that God gave us family to help us understand heaven. And we allow our relationships to make us understand hell. And that's why marriage is under such an attack in our world today. Because the enemy will do anything he can to distort the purposes of marriage and of family. That's why that uh, we, we don't understand how important it is to find a place of commonality with our siblings. That's why we don't understand how important it is to find a way to live at peace, especially those of the household of faith. You see, I'm not fussing at us for not loving the way we ought to. 
I'm fussing at us for not understanding this is the work of the devil. This is the work of hell. Racism's the work of hell. Not loving your family is the work of hell. Class warfare is the work of hell. Now, I'm not saying that things don't need to be corrected. Of course, things. If, if humans are involved, things need to be corrected. But I'm telling you, loved ones, one of the key marks of spirituality is to understand the fight and understand who's behind the fight and understand how to win the fight. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. I think it's probably the hardest lesson for us to learn. I think it's probably the last lesson that we ever learn. John said, love one another for love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God. There was a church writer, a church historian that said in John's last days, I, I, I can't give you the source, but I read this back in the 70s and, and, and didn't footnote it well. But it was said that, uh, you know, John lived probably uh, approaching 100 years of age. And the, the disciples, boy, there were such phenomenal uh, things in their life. Like James, not, um, uh, I'm, I'm talking about James, the brother of Jesus. James was called James the camel need because he lived such an intense life of prayer that his knees looked like camel's knees. He knelt so much. And John, it was said that as John began to have less and less of a pastoral role of preaching, that every now and then, even when his life was almost gone, the young men of the church would pick him up, bring him to the front of the congregation, and he would try to exhort them. But as age can do, his mind began to wander. But John had a way, according to this church writer, of ending every message the same way. When his thoughts left him and his trail he was following disappeared, he would look at the congregation and say, Beloved, love one another. Just love one another. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. Children, love your parents. Mothers, love your babies. Fathers, love your sons and daughters. Love those that you agree with. Love those that you disagree with. Love those who have gone astray. Love them back into the kingdom of God. And it said that John ended everything. You knew what every altar call was. Learn to love one another. This is the end of Holy Week. That's the only bad thing about Easter Sunday. Monday always follows. <laughs> now, what do we do with this? It's time for us to go. I realize that going through this list, some of you, there's three responses here today. Number one, you might say, Pastor, oh, thank you for this reminder. I love Jesus. And I've, I made some A on some of those and maybe a C on some others. But I believe and I'm making progress. I'm on my way to heaven and I want to please Jesus. I think that's probably the overwhelming majority of people that are here or that are watching online or over in Brown Chapel. I think most of you are on track. Like me, you struggle with some things, but at least you got a passing grade. That's what most folks are probably. The, the second group of people is 
maybe here, maybe in the chapel, maybe online, some of you are saying, you know, I may be a church member, but I think I'm lost. I, I, I don't think I passed any of this. I'm lost. What can I do? Well, either in the chapel or here, when we end the service in just a moment, come to the prayer workers and just say, I need to know that I'm born again. I need to know that I have eternal life. They'll be ready to pray for you. In fact, ministry teams, you can go ahead and move into place because I'm about to end. So some say I'm fine. Some might say I'm lost. But there may be others, you don't think you're lost, but you feel like you have lost. You feel like you have lost. You're in a struggle. You have a difficulty, a sickness, a, a, a relational dysfunction. The list could go on and on and on. You, don't, you know that you're not lost. You know that you belong to Jesus, but you feel like you have lost. You feel like there's no victory in my life and I'm not overcoming the devil, Pastor. I'm just bogged down. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all, you know. And I know what it's like to feel that way. As I've told you, I know what it's like for us to feel like we've lost before we realize that we've won. And it's real sweet and cute and, and you know, it's a wonderful saying to, well, pastor said we'll feel like we've lost before we find out that we've won. But the problem is you don't see any, any proofs of winning at all. You're struggling with the lost. And you need help. Let me tell you what I want you to do. If you feel like you've lost, if you need somebody to pray for you, I want you to come and meet with one of the ministry teams here at the front. If, if they are full, just, just wait in the altar area. Just focus on the ministry team, worship team that will be leading us into the Lord's presence. Just worship the Lord and the ministry team will get to you just as soon as they're, they're able if you're watching online and you say, I feel like I've lost, I feel like there's brokenness in my life, call the number that is on the screen or will be on the screen in just a moment. And if you'll call that number, somebody will be waiting to pray with you and to talk with you. If there's no answer, it goes to the message, leave a message, we'll call you right back. We'll get with you as soon as possible. Would you stand with me, please? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. It's because of resurrection. It's nothing we have done. It's because of him. Father, wrap your arms around all of us today. Give us your help today and let us know the life force that is part of every child of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.